today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 to 56. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who had passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Thanks be to God for his word. 
Well, let's pray, shall we, as we come to look at God's word together. Father, we're reminded in the Psalms that your word is more precious than gold and silver. And we ask, Lord, that it would be precious to us today as we look again at what Jesus did at the cross for us. Amen. Well, one of the dangers when we come to a passage like this one is over familiarity. You see, for many of us, this is well-trodden ground. We're not hearing this story for the first time. Every Easter, we make the same journey with Jesus to the cross. And because of that, there's a real danger that we switch off. We fail to comprehend the enormity of what is going on here at the cross. We become dulled by over-familiarity. If you've ever been on a plane before, you'll know that same feeling of of switching off when it comes to the, the, the safety announcements before the plane takes off. The steward or the stewardess come into the aisle with their uh, with their life jacket and their oxygen mask and the normal spiel comes through the tannoy. And you look around the plane and no one's bothered. People have got their earplugs in, they're, they're doing crosswords, they're reading books, they've got their iPads out, they shouldn't, but they have. No one is listening to what's going on because they think they know what's coming next. They think they know what it's all about. And of course, that might be the case when it comes to the pre-flight safety announcement, but when it comes to the cross, we don't. We don't know everything about the cross. There is more to know. There is more to see. There's more to understand. There's more to savour. There's more to experience. There's more impact to be had upon our hearts. You see, however many years you've been following Christ, you have not, let me say this again, you have not plummeted and exhausted the full depths of the wonder and the riches of the cross. Because it's in this, the darkest of hours, that the glory of God shines most brightly. However well trodden this ground may be for you, there is more to see and there is more to savour concerning the things of Christ. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at four things that happen on the way to the cross. Firstly, I want us to see the madness of mockery. Have a look, if you would, at verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. You can see how intentional this this mockery is. After the flogging of Jesus, he's taken back to the soldiers' quarters for what feels like the pre-cross entertainment. It's almost set up like a circus with with Jesus in the middle and the the soldiers, these cohorts, gathered all around enjoying this so-called entertainment. A scarlet robe is thrown on his back to cover his wounds. A crown of thorns is twisted together and placed upon his head. And a wooden staff, mimicking a golden diadem, a royal diadem, is thrust into his right hand. And then as we read in verse 29, they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. How blind they are to the one that they mock. You see, this little circus that has been acted out here will one day be played out in very different fashion when they stand before Jesus in glory. And on that day, Jesus will not be clothed in a scarlet robe, but in majesty. He won't be crowned in thorns, but in splendor. And in his right hand, there won't be a wooden staff. But he will hold all the power and authority of heaven to judge this world and bring in 
the new creation. And on that day, every knee will bow again. Not like the soldiers here in verse 29, not to mock or to mimic, but in awe and wonder, in recognition that Jesus Christ is King. You see, little did these soldiers know that their sordid little show was actually pointing forward to a future reality when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is absolute madness, sheer madness, to mock the one before whom one day you will stand and then kneel in judgment. Jesus is the King. Of that there is no doubt. The only question that remains is what sort of king Jesus is. And the remarkable answer that Easter gives us is that Jesus is the servant king. He came to serve us by suffering and dying for our sin on the cross. Then if you remember back in Genesis chapter 3 with the, with the fall of man, when sin came into this world, God's judgment also came into this world. His judgment falls upon the serpent, upon upon woman, upon man, upon the whole created order. Listen to what God says to Adam in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Here's the result. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Cursed is the ground because of you. And what is the sign of that curse? Verse 18, thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. And you see, from that point forward, all the way through the Bible, thorns and thistles are a symbol of God's judgment, of God's curse upon creation. And so as the crown of thorns is placed on Jesus' head in verse 29, it is a clear sign that the judgment of God, the judgment of the Father, is now falling upon his Son. Why? Because he carried our sin to the cross with him. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin, he who was without sin, the sinless one became sin for us. All of our sin laid to the account, heaped upon the the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might be in the right with the holy God. He wore the crown of thorns in order that we might wear the crown of righteousness. God's judgment fell upon Jesus in order that it might pass over us. You see, the soldiers may have been mocking Jesus, but even in their mockery, even as they place the crown of thorns upon his head, God is giving us this visible picture of what was about to happen at the cross. Our sin given to him. Our sin given to him. Firstly, we have the madness of mockery. Secondly, we have the cruelty of the cross. Have a look, if you would, at verse 31. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his clothes on him. 
Then they led him away to crucify him. With the circus now over, Jesus is led away to be crucified and only one line is needed to describe the horror of that reality. We've seen the same brevity of detail in verse 35. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. You see, all four gospel writers are intentionally brief in their description of what the crucifixion entails. Yet at the same time, would be foolish to pass by the physical sufferings of Jesus too quickly. Listen to what the Roman orator Cicero said of the cross. It is the most cruel and shameful of all punishments. Let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen. Indeed, let it never come near his thoughts or eyes or ears. Or let the word pass from his lips. Such was the cruel brutality of the cross. It's not surprising that the word excruciating that we use in the English language is a derivative of the Latin word crux, which means cross. Jesus died an excruciating death, nailed to a cross and left to suffocate under his own body weight. Yet this was the way that the Father chose for his son to die. The worst form of cruelty that man could devise, yet God takes that cruelty and turns it into a universal symbol of hope and deliverance. You see, God is using the cross to make a point. This is how far God was willing to go for you. To the darkest place imaginable in order to bring you back to himself. There is no pain that God does not understand. There is no sin that God cannot forgive or deal with. There is no sinner beyond the loving reach of our gracious God. Yet sadly, some people look at the cross and they just don't get it. They can't see what Jesus was doing for them. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Like so many today, they look at the cross and it makes no sense. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God for salvation. It is powerful to save people from hell, for heaven, forever. And that is why the cross has become a universal symbol of hope, and deliverance. That's what makes Good Friday so good because of what Jesus did there for us. Firstly, we have the madness of mockery. Secondly, we have the cruelty of the cross. And thirdly, we are given a glimpse of glory. Jump with me, if you would, to verse 45, which brings us to the foot of the cross. This is what we read. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Now Jesus was nailed to the cross at nine o'clock in the morning and twelve o'clock midday the lights go out, it goes pitch black and it stays dark for three hours. Then in verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why 
have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me to die? It is the only time in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus does not refer to his Father as Father. Why? Because in that moment his Father turned his face away. Jesus felt none of the joy and the intimacy and the delight that he experienced for all eternity in the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. All he felt was the full weight of his Father's wrath bearing down on sin. Jesus was forsaken. Not because of his sin, but because of ours. And he did it to bring us into his glorious presence. Have a look at verse 50 and 51. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He died. Jesus died. And at that exact moment, the curtain of the temple, verse 51, was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that separated a sinful people from a holy God. And it was ripped in two. And this was God's doing. Can you see that, verse 51? It was torn from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. Point being, God has made a way for people like us to come back into a relationship with him. Christ died for sins. Once for all the righteous Jesus in the place of unrighteous people. Why? To bring you to God. To give you a glimpse of glory. To bring you into his all-consuming presence. And as you read on, you'll see that there were dramatic scenes all around Jerusalem, not just at the temple. Verse 51, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Death itself is shaken. Such was the seismic activity of what happened at the cross on that day. Now please don't ask me what these holy people were doing all day on Saturday, I don't know. But what I do know is this, verse 53, they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, that's on the Sunday, and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. You see, what we have here is a glimpse of glory. What was happening here on a small scale will one day happen on a huge scale when Jesus comes back. And on that day it won't just be a scattering of tombs around Jerusalem. There will be dramatic scenes in every graveyard, every burial plot, every crematorium across this land. When all those who have died trusting in Jesus will be raised, will be raised to new physical life, to reign with him forever. Firstly, we have the madness of mockery. Secondly, we have the cruelty of the cross. Thirdly, we have a glimpse of glory. And lastly, we have a range of different reactions. You see, there are different individuals and different groups of people who are gathered together around the cross who, who witness the same events yet respond in very different ways. And the question for each of us this morning is who will we line up with most? Who do we associate with most in this story? There's four different reactions 
that I want to take us through very quickly. Firstly, we have the busy soldiers who are preoccupied with worldly things. Have a look at verse 35 onwards. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down they kept watch over him there. Above his head they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Hard to believe, isn't it, that as the Son of God, the High King of Heaven is hanging on a cross, these soldiers are busy playing games and rolling dice to see who gets the gear, oblivious to what is happening above them. Here we have a picture of worldly men preoccupied with worldly things. For them it's just another day at the office. This is their their daily routine, their nine till five. They had orders to crucify on behalf of the Roman governor and they did it without thinking. I do hope that this isn't just another day for you. I do hope that we wouldn't be worldly people, preoccupied with worldly things, too busy to see what is happening at the cross, but that we would be heavenly people, preoccupied with heavenly things. Secondly, we have the passers-by who were blind to the mission of the Messiah. Have a look at verse 39 and 40. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. If. If you are the Son of God. How blind they are to the mission of the Messiah. The very reason Jesus is on the cross is because of who he is. That is what the Messiah came to do. He didn't come to save himself, he came to save others. You can see the same blindness in the the chief priests and the teachers of the law in verse 42. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. How great the irony. Of course he could have saved himself. We saw that two weeks ago in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus could have called on 12 legions of angels to deliver him from this moment, but he chose not to. He chose to not save himself because he came to save others because that was the mission of Messiah. Praise God that Jesus didn't come down from the cross. Otherwise there would be zero hope for you and me. We may not know. We cannot tell what pains he had to bear. But we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we at last might go to heaven, saved by his precious blood. Please don't be like the passers-by, who pass by with their eyes closed, blind to the mission of the Messiah. Thirdly, we have the Roman centurion who was changed forever by what he saw at the cross. Have a look at verse 54. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Just hours before 
this declaration, the same centurion was part of the execution squad who had driven the nails through the hands of Jesus. Yet after witnessing the way that Jesus died, after seeing the darkness, after hearing the cry of dereliction, after feeling the earthquake, his eyes were opened and the truth concerning the identity of Jesus was declared by Gentile lips for the first time. Surely, he was the Son of God. Now we don't know exactly what was going on in his head. We're not, we're not sure for certain that this was a saving faith. But what we do know is this. That centurion was changed forever by what he saw at the cross. And so my question for you is a simple one. Has your life been changed by what happened at the cross? As you look at your life, has it really been changed by seeing and knowing what Christ went through for you? Has the direction of your life been radically reorientated by Christ and what he did on that first Good Friday? Or like the passers-by, will you walk past the cross this morning unmoved and unaffected by what you've seen? And then lastly, we have the loyal ladies who stayed with Jesus to the end. Have a look at verse 55. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. The same women that had cared for Jesus during the three years of his ministry, was still following Jesus when he breathed his last. And in verse 61, they were still there when his dead body was laid in that cold tomb. And as we'll see on Sunday, they were the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. They were loyal throughout. No denial, no desertion, just devotion and loyalty to their Lord. And I've got absolutely no doubt that the world today would take more notice of Jesus if his church displayed the same sort of loyalty and devotion as those ladies. Well, I wonder as we look at the different reactions, who do you line up with most? The busy soldiers who are preoccupied with worldly things? The passers-by hurling the insults, blind to the mission of the Messiah. The Roman centurion, changed forever by what he saw at the cross. Or the loyal ladies who stayed with Jesus to the end. Well, if you're a Christian today, could I encourage you to pray for that same loyalty and devotion? And if you're not yet a Christian today, could I say to you that it's not because you haven't done something for God. It's because you haven't let God do something for you, which is to take away your sin through the death of his son. And that's what Good Friday is all about. As we've seen this morning, it wasn't a good day for Jesus. But because of what Jesus did on the cross for you, it can most certainly be a good day for us. Why don't you spend a few minutes now reflecting on what happened on the cross and how you will respond to what did happen at the cross. The music's going to play. Maybe an opportunity for you to confess sin in your own heart and to say thank you to Jesus, maybe quietly or maybe loudly.
as you see again all that Christ went through for you at the cross.